1: Listen to amazing and bizarre science infuse into your brain. I'm Ian Wolf. On this edition, we'll feature grooving to the circadian rhythm and sperm teasing. But first up, here's the news with Patrick Ruby. <music>
2: An old rock brings new life. An asteroid that fell to Earth on the 28th of September 1969 may hold the key to the origin of life on Earth. New studies have been conducted on the asteroid by Raffaele Saladino of the University of Tuscia in Viterbo, Italy. His experiments are using a chemical which is present in space called formamide, and this chemical can be used to transform many biomolecules. What he did was to obtain one gram of this meteorite, ground it to powder, remove all the organic molecules and leave just the mineral behind, and then mix it with this chemical called formamide. The mixture was then heated to 140 degrees Celsius for 48 hours. And the reaction produced nucleic acids, amino acids, carboxylic acids and precursors to sugar. All basic molecules of life. One of the crucial findings of this study is that this mixture was able to generate both metabolic and genetic precursors. A whole range of essential molecules from just one mixture. Another crucial finding of this was that the minerals within the meteorite could be used to stabilise RNA, thought by many to be the first genetic material. RNA has not been able to be stabilised by such mixtures so far. This could point to a single origin of life on Earth from within the centre of a meteorite. The research has been published in The Origins of Life and Evolution of Biospheres. That elusive origin of life is getting closer. And now, tobacco may help solve world hunger. Special genes found in the flowers of plants could be used to protect crops from fungal disease. Because of the pressures of climate change and the growing population, researchers predict that we'll need to increase our cereal production by about 70%. This includes increasing the the yields of grains, rice, corn and wheat. Research into new genes to help our crops has been conducted by Professor Marilyn Anderson of La Trobe University, Australia. Her research team has been researching a group of molecules called defensins, which have potent antifungal pro- which have potent antifungal molecules. They focused on one key defensin known as NAD one found in the flowers of ornamental tobacco. The team of researchers are engineering transgenic crops to express these antifungal chemicals throughout the whole of a plant, so to take the gene from the flowers of tobacco and transfect them into the whole of a crop plant to make it defense itself so that it can defend itself against fungi. This research is geared towards major fungal diseases of corn in North America, but it can be applicable to diseases of the Australian wheat industry as well. This research was presented at the Australian Academy of Science last Wednesday. And finally, sperm sabotage is the key to contraception. Infertility in men may be due to a faulty chaperone protein, which stops it from recognising the egg, according to an article in ABC Science. About 1 in 20 men, according to researchers, are infertile, and the majority of these men actually produce enough sperm. The trouble is the sperm are unable to recognise and fertilise an egg. Sperm requires several receptors in order to recognise enter and fertilize an egg. These receptors are coordinated by a chaperone protein. The chaperone protein has been investigated by Professor John Aitken of the University of Newcastle, Australia. Aitken used mass spectrometry to analyze the protein structure of sperm, comparing infertile men to fertile men. When they did this they identified the chaperone protein which is called HSP2A, and they found that it was in lower concentration in infertile men. This research could mean that this chaperone protein could be a target in future for male contraceptives, or, on the other hand, a target for treatments for infertility. The research has been presented at the Australian Academy of Science in Canberra last Wednesday. A faulty chaperone that stops your sperm getting jiggy with it.
1: So we've got this amazing substance, formamide, that lets you create nucleic acids from asteroid dust.
2: It certainly does, Ian. (laughs) And one of the uh, incredible things about this discovery is they've used an old rock, one that they've had for ages, and one that they'd researched at the time and they'd found these precursor molecules on. But the flavour of this research was that they were able to go a little bit further and they were able to actually make Lots of different types of molecules, so nucleic acids, sugars, carboxylic acids, amino acids even. They even made glycine, an amino acid from this, all from one batch of precursor substances and one chemical that they added, formamide.
1: Sounds like basically you could turn asteroids into food, because all that's the ingredients
2: of food. I suppose it is. (laughs) It's the ingredients of us, really.
1: Well, yes, but the thing is, it's a lot harder to turn it into living, breathing things than it is to turn it into a food-like substance that you could serve at a fast food bar.
2: I suppose it could. It could be an alternative to the transgenic crops, you think?
1: Could be an alternative to the transgenic burgers. (laughs) (laughs) Which was predicted by Frederick Pohl in his novel, Gateway, where someone does exactly that. They get the carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen from the asteroids and turn it into cheap food.
2: Really? Yeah.
1: Wow. And this sounds like a sort of process that would work. And then you found a use for tobacco. Now, that's where I'm a bit suspicious <laughs> on that story.
2: Well, it's the tobacco leaves, and it's an ornamental tobacco plant.
1: Like, come on, for a start, ornamental tobacco? Really? Is that like ornamental marijuana? I, uh, mean,
2: I wouldn't know. I've never known either of them, either.
1: Ornamental. Um, <laughs> yes, officer, it was ornamental. <laughs> and then, so... Are there no other crops, are there no other plants that have fungus protection that they could study? It just uh, seems like they're trying to possibly, find Possibly,
2: but they, they were specifically looking at this defensin, so this molecule that they were able to isolate from the tobacco plant, I think. So it's not necessarily <laughs> the source which is the main issue here. It's the fact that they've got this special type of defensive molecule, and for some Mm -hmm. reason or other, the tobacco plant has it and is good at using it. And they want to be able to transfer that ability to our crops so that we can increase the yield of our crops and we can solve world hunger and things like that. World
1: hunger, solved by big tobacco. And then finally, of course, we've got the sperm that just doesn't know what to do when it finds Uh, an egg.
2: This obviously is our favorite story of the day, isn't it, Ian? (laughs) Well, I can tell you a little bit of background of that. Um, The
1: male contraceptive pill.
2: Well, possibly. um, What basically happens with our boys once they're in there and they're looking for the egg is that they have to undergo this process called capacitation. Now, your sperm aren't produced ready and eager to fertilize straight away because if they did that, then they'd run all sorts of muck and havoc before they even leave your body and find their way into the um, female reproductive tract. So, they have to undergo this process called capacitation, which is a number of things. It changes the chemical properties within the sperm. It has to do a little bit with pH. It has to do a little bit with ion fluxes and membranes and things like that. Um, and it basically results in a whole load of special genes and proteins being expressed and made and being transported to the surface of the sperm so that it's able, first of all, to recognize the egg, second, to get into the egg, and third, to fertilize it.
1: So that sounds more like it might end up being in a spermicidal gel rather than something that you'd actually take if it's something that affects the surface of the sperm?
2: I suppose it, it depends on whatever delivery would work best for it. Mm. So and if, that's
1: something they don't know yet.
2: No, it's, it's, it's still sort of very much um, basic scientific research. It's just sort of identifying the gene and then thinking of ways to apply it. Like if you're able to enhance the gene's ability, you might overcome fertilisation. If you're able to inhibit it, you might have a new contraceptive. Lachlan Watmore on guitar.
1: You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to diffusion at 2 scrcom Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2 scr and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And finally, Victoria Bond spoke to Professor Ian Hickey at Sydney University's Brain and Mind Research Institute about the emerging effect our circadian rhythm can have on our mood and mental health.
0: I'm with Professor Hickey of the Brain and Mind Research Institute, and we're currently sitting in a sleep study room. Uh, Professor Hickey, could you tell me why that is?
3: We're trying to look at the fundamental biology that underpins how people become depressed or develop other severe disorders like bipolar mood disorder and the onset of things like psychotic disorders, particularly in their adolescent or late-life periods. Much of the work that I've been involved in over the last 25 years has been about ways in which people become depressed and what are the multiple different biological pathways that contribute to the onset of depression. There's a separate set of research we're involved in about the other social and environmental factors that are influencing that biology. But one of the problems that we've had is a great difficulty unpicking the different kinds of biology at different stages of life. And what are the fundamental systems that are disturbed in people with depressive conditions? Now, the reason we're sitting in a sleep laboratory is that one of the systems that we're most interested in is not just your sleep-wake cycle system, but the underlying circadian biology. That's your 24-hour body clock. And the extent to which we know that's disturbed in people with a range of different mood disorders. So we see people who get depressed when the season changes when we go from autumn to winter, right now at this particular time of the year. In the months before, or six weeks before this particular period, we've seen people become elevated in their mood, manic, have the onset of bipolar disorder, so typically in late autumn or in early spring. Now that goes back to something we understand in other animals, which is the onset of hibernation, changes in their biological functions with season, which is another kind of cycle, the seasonal cycle as distinct from what we study here, the 24-hour cycle. But the two cycles are linked, and those who have sensitive 24-hour cycles often also have sensitive season cycles. And they sit and are regulated by the brain through melatonin secretion by the pineal gland in relation to changes, in fact, in brightness in the sky at different parts of the seasons, but also throughout the day. So throughout the day, normal sunlight and activity suppresses melatonin. You stay awake, you're bright, you're active at night. Sunlight goes away, darkness comes on, melatonin is secreted to go to sleep. If it's all worked out and it's all functioning properly, you have a normal, robust circadian system. What we found out in the last 15 years is how the human system is actually regulated, what regulates the whole body system, what keeps it in check and keeps it responsive to the environment, and the extent to which, particularly people who are prone to depression and a range of other serious mood disorders actually have disturbed clocks, clocks that are disturbed by their own genetics, clocks that are disturbed by other lifestyle factors, and the extent to which it may well be that for some depressive disorders, some forms of depression that have their onset, particularly in adolescence, associated with fatigue, associated with changes in sleep-wake cycle, may be better thought of as changes in circadian systems rather than as depressive disorders. The depression is just one of the things that goes wrong. Mood is just one of the 24-hour systems that's upset. So is thinking, so is attention, so is regulation of your immune system, your sleep cycle, a whole lot of things that are actually changed in that period.
0: So I've often heard that depression is linked to the neurotransmitter serotonin. The type of depression that you're describing, is it a completely different animal or are they related?
3: Well, serotonin is just one of the chemicals, one of the principal monoamines that does have its own effects on the circadian system. But this really proposes there are other sorts of depressions that actually are not serotonin-dependent, may well be melatonin-dependent or dependent on the transmitters of the circadian system. And we've just seen in Australia the release of the first antidepressant, new antidepressant, that acts on the melatonin system directly because of stimulation of the melatonin receptors that has antidepressant effects, suggesting a quite different biological pathway to the traditional monoamine, serotonin, noradrenaline, dopamine pathways that have been the basis of our therapeutics for the last 50 years. So it's a really interesting time of studying a different system, the melatonin system, the circadian system, both in terms of understanding how particularly some young people become depressed in the first place, what might be different therapeutic interactions, and in what ways they may be able to better regulate their own lifestyles or understand the way in which their own mood or energy levels change in relation to different environmental factors like changes in the seasons or like staying up too late studying or adjusting their lifestyles in different ways that may be putting them at risk or they may actually be able to use therapeutically to better control things like the mood disturbance they might be experiencing.
0: So we were, we were taught in medical school that around adolescence, people tend to want to sleep much later in the day and they find it very difficult to get up early in the morning. Does this have any connection at all with what you're talking about, the onset of this depression?
3: There are a series of normal processes that occur during adolescence related to first physiological development, which we recognise as puberty, the physical changes associated with sexual maturity, but also inside your head there's a whole lot of other stuff going on in terms of brain maturity and particularly frontal lobe development in later, later adolescence and early adulthood, is associated with further development of sleep-wake cycles, and particularly that period associated with going to bed later and sleeping later, and very deep sleep in association with that release of growth hormone, and you see particularly growth spurts and particularly in boys, you know, they grow an inch every time they go to sleep, they get bigger, and that's all part of that period of neurohormonal changes associated with brain development in late adolescence. So part of that is normally going to sleep later and rising later, up to a point. What we see going on in society now is something quite different, which is going to bed really late. And sometimes rising later is a consequence of that, but often when people have to go to school, go to university, go to work, they're actually having to get up anyway, so they're sleeping shorter. So they've not only got circadian problems from moving their circadian cycles, they've also got sleep deprivation, in association with that. So we've actually been looking at some of the cognitive effects of that, and that's probably the worst combination from a cognitive point of view is going to bed late but still having to get up early and being sleep-deprived and circadian-shifted. So we've got to look at the lifestyle issues here and their cognitive and mood and emotional impacts, as well as the circadian impacts. Now, if you really shift your sleep-wake cycle and try and compensate by staying in bed later... Then you'll run into other problems, putting on weight, getting fat, becoming diabetic, because the metabolic problems associated with that are quite profound. You'll be messing with your cortisol cycles, your other hormonal cycles, and actually your capacity basically to metabolise normally and stay at normal body weight. So we think that one of the other factors going on here associated with sleep disturbance is contributing in part to the obesity problems and metabolic problems that we are seeing in young people. And a lot of the genes and mechanisms that are shared between depression are probably also shared with obesity, and they may both relate to the same thing, disorders circadian function. So one of the really important implications here is that we may be able to identify a group of people in adolescence who really, as much as mood disturbance, firstly recognise changes in energy disturbance and changes in their mood and their sleep-wake cycle, not just their sleep, but their sleep-wake cycle, the timing of sleep, the onset of sleep, their energy levels, their mood levels. They may recognise it first through seasonal sensitivity. They may just recognise that it shifts in particular ways that are causing trouble for them on an ongoing basis. And so what we see often are periods of, that may present as fatigue or it may present as poor concentration or daytime problems as well as mood problems. People tend to think, ah, you know, that's the relationship trouble I've got, that's the school trouble I've got, that's the other sets of psychological issues that we would normally associate with causing us emotional distress without necessarily recognising that actually there's another fundamental bit of biology going on. So the challenge for us in the adolescent onset mood disorders and more severe psychiatric problems is to try and work out who belongs to which different groups and for whom is disturbance of the circadian system part of the problem and hopefully part of the solution. The good news is that it is part of the problem It's one of the systems we know quite a lot about regulating through sleep-wake cycles, through light exposure, through exercise, through regulation of the sleep-wake cycle, and now through new products uh, medicines that either directly act on that system through the melatonin-type mechanisms or act on wakefulness through other types of mechanisms to help regulate that situation. That may lead to quite different therapeutic strategies. We're also very interested in whether the early introduction of those strategies reduces the chance that people go on in their 20s or 30s to more severe mood disorders if left untreated.
0: And so for our listeners, just as a final conclusion, is there anything in our lifestyle that we could modify or try to work on to, to really get our circadian rhythm working well?
3: Yep. There are really critical things. Daytime exercise, particularly morning exercise, rising at a regular time, reducing daytime caffeine and stimulant-type products, very much and then setting go to sleep times and they need to be often for uh later lessons early adults you know in their 20s they need to be in that kind of 11 o'clock kind of period and people then need to be up at like seven typically the next day and stick to those types of issues so it's physical activity outside sunlight in the daytime and it's trying to keep that nighttime stuff regular and then if you own a phone and a computer and every other piece of technology Do not take it to bed with you. Put it somewhere else and try to sleep deeply, which is really essential to physical health as well as cognitive capacity. What we are seeing is a generation who goes to bed late, instead of going to bed with someone they like, they go to bed with their phone, with their technology, with their computers, and it actually disturbs their sleep, keeps them more awake, sleeping probably less, and that having, for some people who are biologically sensitive, genetically sensitive, adverse effects. So reducing the risk for everybody, and if you're one of the people who's got one of these problems, these issues then become even more important.
0: Professor, thank you very much.
1: That was Professor Ian Hickey of the Brain and Mind Research Institute talking about recent developments in our understanding of circadian rhythms, sleep-wake cycles, and depression. Relax. You're quite safe here.
0: No. Where am I? In
1: bed. What am I doing? Talking to myself. Look, I must have a star on my door. Or better still, a door, a door, door, door. Oh. a <laughs> Swing doors, huh? Look, 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 look. Okay, doors. Swing. <laughs>
2: silly We'll count those bars on the window. One, two, three. Sleep. Please let me sleep. Poetry. That'll work. Come sweet slumber and shroud me in thy purple cloak.
1: <laughs> Doesn't even rhyme. Is that my tease, made?
2: Paranoid, paranoia. I can't stand tea. Happy Harry's eye Club. How do I get to sleep?
1: From us, this time on Diffusion. You can send email to diffusion at 2scr.com. That's diffusion at 2scr.com and tell us your thoughts, feelings, and stories. If you'd like to be on radio and you live in Sydney, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Patrick Ruby and Victoria Bond. I produced Diffusion in the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.
2: Yeah!